Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Indie Football Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Brown, and joining me in the studio this week, we have Chief Football Writer Miguel Delaney, Sports Editor Ben Burrows, and Columnist Tony Evans. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. In this episode, we will be looking ahead to the weekend's Premier League action, and Ben will be asking, is the EU really to blame for the Premier League's new handball law? But before all of that, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the life and times of David Luiz, Premier League, Europa League, and Champions League winner, as well as Arsenal's brand new summer signing. So guys, I guess the best way to start this off is just if you could give me your snap verdicts on him, essentially. How good is he at 32? And is he good value for Arsenal at £8 million? Uh, I suppose a 7.5 out of 10 player, maybe. And you can see a lot of qualities there. He's been a really prominent figure in so many title-winning sides, particularly two at Chelsea, in which he was, and especially the second one when he was one of the main players. But you always get that, that sense that there's maybe something missing, and not just... Uh, in his, in his head, um, just in terms of his def- in terms of his defending, especially for a centre half, that there could be. He's, he, it's amazing for, for a thirty-two year old. You still feel there's that rawness to his game. Tony, what do you kind of make of Luis just generally as a player? Do you think he's the sort of defender that Arsenal can rely upon? No, I think it's a. I think the comedy value of David Luiz and Arsenal coming together, the Arsenal defence coming together, the potential is massive. It'll be brilliant. Um, I, he's, he's prodigiously talented, but you know there is no discipline there. Yeah. And I, you know, in that defence, they needed someone solid, someone solid who would direct the you know the, the rest of the back four, someone who would. Put, get some coherence in the way they operate as a group. And you know what? All we're going to see is David Luiz getting the ball at his feet, poncing up into the midfield, playing diagonal yeah. balls. Oh, it's going to be great. But I'll tell you what, they're going to leak goals. Ben, yeah. Ben, you're quite a big fan of him, aren't you? You liked him at Chelsea. I mean, what, what do you make of him kind of generally? I mean, I'd say, yeah, if you're a neutral, I think he's very entertaining, both good and bad. He does lots of things that you wouldn't expect a defender to do, both good and bad. I think what you, if you, if in, in defence of David Luiz, I think you'd say that managers like Carlo Ancelotti, Antonio Conte, Maurizio Sarri last year have almost, to a degree, particularly in Sarri's case last year, almost built their entire sides around him. So he's obviously got something that they like. Obviously, there's, there's negative sides to his game as there is with anyone. But I think... He is almost one of these unique players, I think, and as we'll go into, um, he's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast today is because, Miguel, you've been working on quite a big kind of feature piece about Luis. Do you want to take us back to kind of the start of his career, maybe? Because I know you were speaking to one of his quite early coaches who influenced how he plays now. Yeah, I I probably should have mentioned that when I first answered, actually. That's that's, that's why we're doing this. And part of it is because Saturday is his first big game for... Arsenal specifically at a stadium where they've often had some of their biggest defensive meltdowns over the past few years with that made all the more prominent this week because he's going to be cast against Virgil van Dijk who's probably the best centre-half in the world at the moment Uh, and that is what that kind of effect is what Arsenal are hoping for and need so I think it's going to you know 
put a lot of focus on David Luiz and and specifically it was this bigger question which is I think what the piece is going to be about over whether he is actually a defender um I did, I did something with Chris Uton last week actually who made the point that and Uton's probably in the last few years has been maybe along with Rafa Benitez and people like that one of the most defensive minded coaches in the league and someone who's kind of bases his coaching career is based on organizing defenses and his his entire view was I don't see him as a defender I see him as an attacking player who just plays for, further back and that does tie into one of the things um I was speaking about with like I spoke to a guy called um Joao Paulo Sampao who is now the youth director of Palmeiras but he was the coach at Victoria uh, who's David Luiz's first proper club he was initially a young player at Sao Paulo, but was let go because he was too small. And he was a midfielder then. Uh, he did have a bit of a growth spurt um, and then became one of the tallest players in the Victoria team. But this, he was a number eight then, kind of almost an attacking midfielder really in Brazil. And this guy, Joao Paulo, basically saw he's not fully effective there. And this was an era, remember, when Brazil, three at the back was very much in vogue with the central centre half, not fully a centre half it was kind of almost a dictator or director of play and this this coach Joe Paulo said that, that what he saw in David Luiz that he'd be perfect for that position specifically because he had two proper defenders alongside him which is also I suppose how he excelled at Chelsea under Conte um, but if you go right back to that, that then that's why you have this maybe contradiction on a centre half or a, a central defender who all his main qualities aren't really about defending. Yeah. Well, I think what's so interesting about that is he... So he's released from Sao Paulo when he's a kid, 10-11. He was was his boyhood club as well, yeah. And that was essentially because he was too skinny or too frail. And then goes to Vittoria and there's question marks over, well, where is it he should play? And is he kind of reliable enough to be a defender? Well, they're the points, like, Tony, you've just brought up all these years later. He's kind of made this incredibly successful career, and yet those two central questions we're still talking about. Yeah, I mean, the the thing is, he's got talent, and he's, he's got a great physique, and he's got a huge amount of talent, and he's got through his whole career on that talent. Now, if that talent was allied to discipline and a sense of uh, a tactical sense, a tactical awareness, the ability to use space, we'd probably be talking about him as one of the greatest defenders ever to kick the ball, or one of the greatest midfielders ever to kick the <laughs> kick a ball. Maybe even like a, a, a forward going midfielder, but. These questions that have remained with him through his career are, are, you know, are valid. You know, you look at him and you think you still don't know where his best position is. And I think that's when we eventually come to assess his career, that's what we'll say. Unless, of course, he turns into the new Tony Adams at the Emirates (laughs) and, you know, and and develops this late in his career, this ability to organise. And and the thing is, he's got got some leadership qualities. He's very good in the dressing room. Uh, But they're more, they're not the sort of leadership qualities, say, that Van Dijk has, that transfer to the pitch. You know, everyone likes him. He's, He's a bit daft. But he's, you know, he's not the sort of player that you'd look to in times of crisis. The rest of the team are not going to look to him and say, you know, David Luiz will lead us through this because he just doesn't have that about him. I guess in many ways, he's sort of the epitome of the modern defender where uh, managers actually don't really want them to defend that much. So you pick Luiz on the proviso you're going to have the ball all the time and then he can step forward, mm-hmm. start attacks from there and he's your extra midfield player or whatever. Obviously, we've seen the impact of having actual defenders defending, and that was the primary reason Liverpool did so well last season because of the introduction of Van Dijk. It's sort of interesting that Louise is sort of, 
yeah, he's that he's he really does epitomise exactly what managers are trying to sort of ask their defenders to do, which in so many ways isn't actually defending that much. The brains at Beckenbauer. <laughs> but, I mean that's a, I, I, actually just before we came in here I spoke to Mark Schwartz of his piece as well who played with him for two years at Chelsea and he was saying about it that he felt David Luiz and I think David Luiz told him this um, he saw himself as a centre midfielder but Mourinho was quite insistent no you're a centre half and maybe, maybe that's more reflective of how Mourinho sees midfielders rather necessarily David Luiz is a defender um, uh, but I suppose it ultimately explains why Mourinho was so uh, accepting of getting rid of him within a year of being at Chelsea. Yeah, Let, let's fast forward to the Chelsea spells then. So he goes from Vittoria to Benfica, moves from Benfica to Chelsea for it's twenty million. The legend of Benfica, they absolutely love him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he moves to Chelsea. Actually, Arsenal came quite close to signing him, didn't they? In twenty ten, when he, he misses out in the World Cup squad, uh, and, and Manchester City wanted him as well. So uh, and that, that it was that. I think City were interested in him right up to that January um, when Chelsea signed him and Fernando Torres. And then she, I think to pro- be basically that was when Abramovich, he, I think he got, he got a little bit spooked by where Chelsea were in the table. And he basically said, right, let's go for it and, and, and roll the dice on both Torres and David Luiz. And City were basically put off with the price and stuck with Jolie and Lescott. 20, 20 million as well, which I suppose back in 2011 is quite a lot of money. Yeah. I also heard that Anderlecht was scouting him, which meant we could have seen a company, David Luiz, central oh, wow. defence partnership, which would have, been, would have been good. But uh, So he's had two spells at Chelsea, obviously. He goes to PSG in 2014, becomes the most expensive defender in the world at that point. Um, ben, let me come back to you. So given all that he's achieved at Stamford Bridge, obviously I mentioned all those trophies at the top of the show, can we consider him a Chelsea legend? Do you think Chelsea fans consider him a legend? Or do you think the way he's left twice now has kind of left a sour taste in the mouth? I think certainly the second time and the fact that he's gone down the road to Arsenal is going to sour um, how they think of him. I mean, he is was the last of the, after Gary Cahill left and now him, he is the last of the 2012 Champions League winning squad to go. So obviously now their centre midfielder is now the manager. That's a different thing. But um, he, yeah, he's here. So that special night in Munich will obviously be, will be held in the hearts of all Chelsea fans for forever. And I think probably down the line in 10, 15 years time when this Arsenal spell is over and it's forgotten, I think they'll take him back into their hearts again. But I think, yeah, when he first turns back up at Stamford Bridge this season, I think he's going to know about it. It's amazing looking at the managers he's played under at Chelsea. So he starts with Ancelotti, AVB, Di Matteo, Benitez, Mourinho leaves, Conte brings him back and then obviously plays under Sarri. Tony, who do you think was the best Chelsea manager for him? Well, I'm not entirely sure that any of them particularly would have made him first choice. I mean, you got to remember that um, that Abramovich tended to play favourites in terms of players, and uh, Luis and Torres were the perfect example of they were players he wanted rather than the managers wanted. And one of the reasons he come back is because he was a favourite of the owner. So it's a. Uh, I mean, one of the things Rafa talked about him, and he said like uh, he says he wished he would have had him when he was younger. He said because no one had ever taught him how to play football, how to use space, and most of the points, how to use his body and his physique, which is especially important for a centre-half, or, or even if when he played in midfield, you know, the ability, because he likes to get forward, the ability to walk opposing defenders backwards, you know, he, had, he, he doesn't do that very well, and um, I, you know, and he, he just thought all this raw talent, which was still raw, and he played him in the midfield where he wanted to play, 
well, but not not because he thought he was a better midfielder, but because there was someone behind him, and when he made the inevitable error, someone could sweep it up after him. But you know, he saw the positive points on him. Um, and and you know and and clearly he's someone with with a huge amount of ability. Mourinho wasn't very good for him. It's you know that was that was a bad matchup. Ancelotti was uh, probably probably best because Ancelotti's attitude is, um, is 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 more flexible and perhaps yeah. not quite as um, as obsessive as some of the others. Yeah. And you know he he, he appreciated the talent, um, but you know I think in many ways. Going to Chelsea when he did, and twice, is he went to the wrong club, even though he probably will, in the long term, be regarded as one of the legends of the era. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, with moves like this to Arsenal now, people do forget about those things in the, in the long run. Like, yeah. Cast against the kind of longer term of the uh, like what, what he's doing at the club. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, there's almost a wider story hit there as well. My piece, my piece will kind of touch on and how certain careers are directed. I mean, obviously, um, David Luiz's agent is one of the most prominent in the game, uh, Kia Jarabicin, who's had specific mm. influence at Chelsea over the years. And, you know, I think that's, that's w- one reason why he's been back to Chelsea twice and also another reason why this deal has gone through, even though it was so surprising that it happened so close to deadline at a club that's just given him a two-year contract and is <laughs> having a transfer ban and um, that it was so smooth in that regard. Um, but... In, ter- in terms of the manager he's suited to as well, it was one of, one of the things, and, and his personality, one of the things Schwartz said as well, I mean, he he, he talks to me, he really liked him as a player, thought he was very talented, uh, but he said his what would dictate his performance as much as anything was his mental state. And that didn't just come down to emotion, it came down to kind of even deeper set things like his relationship with the manager at that time, how the team was doing at that time. And he, he found him one of the most emotional players he dealt with, which again, I suppose, if you contrast to Van Dijk, I mean, what, the, what they say of Van Dijk at Liverpool is basically that he's uh, absolutely nothing phases him. Like, it's actually, it's incredible that, um, that he's just so, he's, he's so assured. I suppose that's an interesting point, isn't it? I mean, if you... <laughs> To, to show your emotion like that is probably to, to be a centre back. That's the weakest position to yeah. to kind of behave like that because one mistake and suddenly your team's absolutely in trouble. And that's where people can target it then as well. Yeah. Um, ben, do you think that the eight million there or thereabouts that Chelsea got for him? Do you think that's worth it considering considering they've now just strengthened one of their direct rivals for a top four spot? Um, I wouldn't say so. No, I think if you. I mean, it would appear, without knowing too much about it, that Keir Drabjian's had a fair amount to do with this whole deal. And that if he'd hit the open market in a market where Lewis Dunk was being touted around for 45 million, then I think David Luiz, uh, for all his faults, is still worth more than eight. I think if you're selling into Arsenal, then it's uh, definitely the case on deadline day, even more so. So I think we'll we'll wait and see. I think he does strengthen Arsenal. I think we'll go into it in the next part, but... I would say he's already the best defender at the club, which says quite a lot about Arsenal's defence, I would say. Yeah, just before we head to the break, Miguel, I wanted to ask you about um, Luis under Conte, because we haven't actually mentioned that. And I suppose that would probably be his strongest individual spell, right, when Conte was playing the, the three at the back, which is that it's the, it's the system he yeah. kind of got used to playing at Vittoria, Benfica played it a little bit, and it kind of gives him that protection either I, side. I mean, that was probably his best year at Chelsea. And again, it, it what didn't happen by design. Again, it was coincidence. And even though... Conte is much more fixed than Ancelotti. He, he was one of those happy accents. I mean, initially, he wanted to go to Chelsea and play four at the back. He didn't have the players. He had three, and then suddenly he has this centre half who's who's dropped in quite late in the window again. Another another 
late August signing in that regard, or late window signing. And he's just perfect at that time for that system. Um, and so it was quite a happy marriage in that regard for a year. Um, I'm not sure Conte fully trusted him, given he was open to moving David Luiz on again in the summer of 2017. Uh, it didn't happen then. Um, but yeah, I think that that's probably when when his when his Chelsea legacy is remembered. It'll probably come down to two things: 2012 and 2017. Yeah. And well, that that signing, like Conte, was absolutely completely dismayed when he was handed Luis at that point. He was like, you know, I, and for the next month, um, he, he he really didn't know where to go with the team, and uh, and it, it looked at one point as if he was going to walk because he was so um, disturbed. He got um, they got torn apart at the Emirates, yeah, didn't yeah. he? And, and he went he went on a massive rant after that game, yeah, which, yeah. which is a real. A classic message to Abramovich. Yeah, and you know, and, and then after that, he kind of took stock and thought, well, all right, I've got to work with what I've got. I can't do what I want to do, and that's when he come up with the the system that you know the three at the back, you know, essentially, and and it did work. But he was never completely satisfied with it because he would have he would have shipped Luis out yeah. in the summer, you know, you know, without a doubt. It's amazing how that team came together, considering. Parachute Lurie's into that position, and then players like Alonso still having these kind of incredible yeah. I mean, like, outlier seasons. There's a little bit of kind of a, a, a quirk of fortune historically in that Guardiola hadn't fully settled. It was Guardiola's first season at City, so he hadn't kind of settled there. United had made a bad appointment to Mourinho. Liverpool and Klopp weren't ready, and Leicester had just won the title. So there was a bit of a vacuum mm. in English football, and that, al- and that allowed Chelsea just suddenly come together in so many ways at the right time. But uh, which isn't to say they weren't a great team, but I think almost in any other season, bar maybe that spell between 2014 and 2017, yeah. that Chelsea team wouldn't have won the title. Yeah, and and you know, so, so probably if you're a Tottenham fan, you'd look at that year and you think yeah. uh, that was a year. But there was was it the Liverpool game? Because I, I think I remember. Um, I think it was sitting next year at, at Stamford Bridge, yeah. where he talked. Uh, Conti talked about finishing tenth again. They finished tenth the previous year, and he's like, "We're going to finish tenth And he's like, "You know, it's, <laughs> look at the players." And, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was absolutely. And there was also when he called it a Mourinho season. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, and, um, so you know, I, I, I think no one expected it. You know, least of all Conti and, and Luis never expected it either. That was a year for Spurs because the the Leicester season, the, the season before, they weren't actually that close for a lot of it. It was it was the season after when they got. Well, you, you suspect groups of players uh, with a certain manager have windows where they you know they can win things, and that two year window I suspect with Tottenham's, and I think the window shut now. Yeah. On that note, uh, we're going to go for a quick break. Uh, when we get back, we will be talking all about Luis's move to Arsenal, how he kind of helps Arsenal out in the future, what the future holds for him as a player, and then looking ahead to the Premier League action as well. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. And this week's topic is David Luiz. And it's probably about time we speak about his transfer to Arsenal and also his performance against Burnley last weekend. I actually covered Arsenal home and away last season. And if you ask me one player to improve their defence, it probably wouldn't have been Louise. Uh, but Ben against Burnley, you kind of spotted how he offered something, well, different to, to what they've had before. Well, exactly, yeah. I think it's the it's the reason any manager sort of, if they do, falls in love with Louise is sort of like Tony and Miggs have already talked about, is that that footballing talent, that ability on the ball. There was a couple of times really early on where he picks the ball up deep and Aubameyang's gone and he picked him out over the top on the diagonal and you've got they Burnley obviously played quite a high press to sort of um stop Danny Ceballos's time on the ball didn't work that well but um they were trying to close that space and obviously if you leave a high line against someone like Aubameyang ordinarily in times past last year in particular you would have been able to get away with that because there wasn't a player in Arsenal squad who could play that ball but immediately Louise his first thought is to play forwards obviously before he's even thinking about what's behind him and he played a great ball over the top to Aubameyang and I imagine when Pepe, who's equally as quick, is in fully integrated into the team, that's something they'll look to do. And I think that can help them. Obviously, his main job is to defend, but I think he does add a different dimension to what they've already got. Miguel, do you think he's kind of yeah, the specific type of player that Emery's really been missing? Because last season they struggled playing out from the back. There were some absolute horror shows early into the season. There's been this question about kind of leadership in the dressing room. They've had the rotating armband, which hasn't been hasn't gone down that well. Do you think he kind of solves those issues? Well, I suppose one thing I'd say that he's he's got personality that Arsenal maybe missed. Um, also, just one another thing that Schwartz just said there. I mean, he was talking about having to adjust to players like David Luiz. That wasn't actually such an issue. It was adjusting to the the line that Chelsea played at that time. Uh, and he thinks Leno will actually be quite a good fit for David Luiz. Yeah. So from that point of view, and from when 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 Arsenal have the ball, um, he'll be valuable. Uh, but again, it comes back to when it, when he when he doesn't have it. But I mean, the the leader thing is interesting as well. Given I've I've, I've just done a piece yesterday about Miguel Delaney podcast. <laughs> 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 I, I did I did I did a piece yesterday, basically challenging. Well, not challenging, but arguing that we, we, the way a lot of modern teams are built, and particularly I suppose the way. Klopp, Guardiola and Pochettino are probably the three best managers in the league have built their teams now in which the the old fashioned leader they, they don't really have any of them. They've got they do they do have players who are willing to kind of um or as as as, Sauke, as Gareth Sauke would say, they have a leadership groups, players like Maguire and Henderson, but they're more kind of glue rather than welders who fuse teams together by like the fire of their of their personality it's it's all a bit more lower key um but then i suppose as we've already discussed here it's not like david luis is a, is a soonest in that regard or tony adams either his his brand leadership as tony already already alluded to is a bit is a bit more different yeah and he's you know he's he's a good presence in the dressing room he's a likable presence and he's effervescent but it, the, the emotion that uh that miguel referred to earlier on is sort of negates a bit of that on the pitch so he's he's not going to grab a team by the scruff of the neck but he does he does have qualities i think what will be really interesting and it'll be a, a sati is a huge test for arsenal but and, and Luis himself but 
Southampton last week against Liverpool, uh, Romeo was uh, getting on the ball in the midfield and and playing that diagonal ball quickly uh, into into the gap between uh, Alexander Arnold and um, and Matip and getting the runners to go after it and it worked really well. It put Liverpool on the back foot, it turned the defence round, and they don't like that. And that's where Luis will be, you know could be really effective at Anfield. On the other hand, Liverpool front three are going to be charging all around them and it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Klopp targets him with Firmino running across the face run across his face yeah. and, and, and cutting into the, the space he leaves either side. It'll be so interesting to see whether Emery goes through at the back because he did it a lot last season and now Luis is there you start thinking, I mean, Rob Holding obviously had a really good season last year and then got injured. Socrates is a reasonable, reasonably reliable defender. They've got good wide players. I think the only problem for Emery, and it'll be an interesting test of his kind of influence, is that they've signed so many high-profile attacking players. And if you're playing for it at the back, you're going to have to compromise on at least one yeah. of them. Can he kind mm-hmm. of keep getting away with leaving out a Pepe or a Lacazette or, or well, whoever? That's why I think it's actually been quite a weird window for Arsenal, because on one level... It's exactly what the fans want, and it's something, and a little bit of what the team needs. And that they're big name signings that are exciting. They get, they, they know they, and you, I suppose you could feel it around the Emirates uh, at the start of this uh, the other day that fans wanted to be there again. There's only the kind of the moaning that we've seen in, in previous seasons. Yeah, it was, it was a diff- in the yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but but it's, and that, that is one of the excitements. Any, when any season says, oh, what are new signings like?" And they've got a perfect bunch for that. And yet, it still feels like they haven't solved. Key team, or not? Maybe that's wrong. But if it, it felt, it, it feels like they've taken a gamble on certain positions or where they've invested most of their money. Although I think Tierney's an excellent signing, mm. who uh, they've got on a great deal. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if, if he stays injury free, yeah. he'll be brilliant. And you know, and if if you know Bellerin comes back anywhere near where he is, you know, and 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 gets to the level he was two years ago, I mean, they'll be. They've sorted the fullbacks up for a long while, you would have thought, but th- there's too many big ifs there, and you know you you can still see, you know, notwithstanding Torreira, you can still see a big hole in the that central midfield where people pour through, and you know, and and there's no there's, there's no coherence, there's no link between the defence and the, the the attack. Well, that's what Louise might supply with his long balls. It's gonna be interesting, really, because one of the sort of major criticisms of Arsene Wenger, particularly at the end of his stint at Arsenal, was that sort of lack of pragmatism and the fact that he wouldn't prepare for the opposition at all. It was all about his methods and his style. If Unai Emery is going to go to Anfield and try and play them at their own game or not, I mean, that's, I mean, it's a fool's errand in my opinion, but it, he could switch to three at the back and then maybe play Lacazette and Aubameyang closer together, which is what they like to do. Mm. Um, and that could pass, possibly be a way to attack a goal... To defend against Liverpool's strengths, but also potentially if they do have any weaknesses, which, like Tony said, turning them round. I don't think even Van Dijk's going to fancy chasing Aubameyang all over all afternoon, so we'll the, have to see. The, the three at the back thing, when Tottenham used three at the back at Anfield, uh, you know, in the spring, in the first half, Liverpool murdered them. They were delighted they played three at the back. The, as I say, the plan was for Firmino to run across the, the central defender and go, go at angles. And the, the goal they scored, the, uh, from the Andy Robertson cross and Firmino, the header, was the plan coming to fruition. When, uh, when Tottenham went to a four, they found it much more difficult and, and, and a four in midfield. And they swamped the midfield. And 
I was going to say, probably Arsenal would be much better going for something, a plan like that. But then you think the Arsenal midfield and you're like, nah, maybe not. <laughs> well, actually, on tied to all this, maybe this is a podcast in itself. Are we having Emery? Uh, I like him, but I don't think... No, he, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's a top-class coach. No, uh, definitely not. I think, I think that's a bit harsh. I think... <laughs> I think, I think he did okay last was, season. Was there any real palpable difference between the Wenger era? I mean, every time I went to the Emirates, I'm like, you know, like, has he gone? Arsenal is still here. <laughs> I think it's tricky. I think if you can um, plead the case of the defence, I suppose, in that, I mean, it's more, it was always going to be one of the hardest jobs in world football, argue, uh, arguably as hard as any has ever been, yeah. trying to follow Wenger and sort of right that wrong so quickly. It's, it was always going to take longer than a year. I think the sort of the transfer strategy, if you call it a strategy, it's a bit all over the place, which we've written about. I think they've shown signs that they're trying to do the right things. But, I mean, it's still a work in progress. Whether Emery is the guy who will be there at the end when it's finished off, I don't know. There's, there's nowhere to hide now as well, because obviously the statement from yeah. Josh Kroenke this week was essentially, we've spent some money and yeah, <laughs> you it. better get us no, Champions League. Do it now. Uh, well, just in terms of actually succeeding to anger, I actually think... I think it was more favourable than that. I wouldn't completely agree there because I think, say when Ferguson went, I mean, and we're talking about a similar dynamic here, you know, it was traumatic for United because he just won a title and was still, you know, the, the god figure at the club. Whereas Arsenal, it felt like they're basically, they were waiting for Wenger to leave for about five years. So there was more of a psychological readiness for the switch. Um, obviously, they, they also tried to do what United didn't and preempt a change by bringing in a, a, a totally new technical structure to replace all the elements of what Wenger did. They didn't get that right and very quickly had to readdress some of it. And one of the ways they did readdress it was also in um, heightening uh, the coach's influence. Because initially, Emery was meant to fulfill a role that was just another part of the structure, whereas very, very quickly they dispensed with that and he has m- much more power and more power than someone like uh, Sven Mislint expect- expected. And I suppose the question then is whether... Emery himself is worth that power. Well, he's only he's got one year left on the contract. He's out at the end of the season. If and if he doesn't uh, get into the top four, regardless of whether he wins a, a cup, I think he'll be on his way. I think yeah, that's true. I think what I, I think what why I saw it is so, is so difficult is almost this sort of the situation he was walking into in that they were sort of a, a sleeping basket case of a club. Like that, mm. there was a lot of work that needed to be done, as we've seen with the sort of the chopping and changing at the top where there's not a sort of clear, defined idea of what they want to be. They've already lost a chief exec. They've lost a technical director. They've, they've appointed a new one. You've now got Eddie in already halfway through a transfer window. These kind of things, it was a club that needed changing, but it was going to be very difficult to do so. Plus, the, the, the demand from the supporters was exactly the same as if they had just won the league the season before. Well, they were a well, sick yeah, place I mean, squad the, whose fans demanded success. You know, they they, they, they kind of... They want to be entertained, and they've got this like idea that they're entitled to go into the top four. Which most, to be honest, the the big six, six clubs tend to do. So I'm not single out Arsenal fans, but you, the pressure there. But I mean, what, what what it needed, and where I actually at the start thought Emery might work is it needed organisation because there's good players there. There are a lot of good players there, and you get a coach going and actually coach them because Wenger didn't do any coaching. Coach them, get them to do the simple things, get them to do them right, and then Emery come in, and within seconds, you see, he's, he's telling them to play the ball up from the back when they're not suited to it, and you think, this isn't coaching. This is like suicide. So, I mean, so it never worked, and I mean, I know I... 
I often bring him up because, you know, sort of, I mean, connections with him. But if Benitez would have gone in there with those players, they would have done much better. They probably would have made the top four because there is enough talent there. It's just how you use them. And, of course, and, and the other thing about, um, you know, Gazidis, you know, the chief executive, overseas getting Wenger out. It's, you know, it would always, it would almost become his life mission by the time it happens. And then what's he do? He immediately skips town to Milan. And, um, you know, and you're like, hmm, what was that all about? And I think that tells you when there's invariably the, the, the mess in the boardroom, the symptoms are showing on the pitch. And I think the, st- the symptoms are still showing there. I think Arsenal needs to almost reset and start again and come up with a different, I hate the word, philosophy. Mm. Just before we uh, move on, we'll talk a little bit about the Premier League before the uh, end of the show. We actually had an email from one listener when we asked for David Luiz questions. And uh, he said that Carlo Ancelotti tipped Luiz to become the best defender in the world when he signed him in 2011. Did Luiz ever get close to that? Miguel, what do you think? No. (laughs) (laughs) Next section. I wouldn't say he was ever top five. No, definitely not. I'd have to agree with my esteemed colleagues. He was never he, he was never the best defender in the world. He's maybe the most entertaining, but um most expensive, but definitely the most expensive. Um never quite hit that. But um maybe he will now, maybe not. Okay. Um just before we go, does anybody have anything they desperately want to say about the Premier League this weekend, Miguel? Any thoughts on Chelsea after the Chelsea? I think it could be more of a struggle this season than I anticipated. Uh fully enough I was talking to someone yesterday who said uh who has been involved in one, in one of Chelsea's opening three games and said that he, he was absolutely stunned by how open they Lampard had that midfield. And they actually, he saw it not, not to give a, a friend of mine and a rival publication kudos, but he actually cited Jonathan Wilson's piece on Sunday and said that he agreed with the view that maybe given Lampard's history to player, that could actually have an, be having an influence on how he views midfield because it, it was actually stunning that there was absolutely no, even, even with Kante in the pitch, it, it, the entire midfield structure was dependent on Kante running. That the, It was so uh, open. Oh and, yeah. and, and the thing is, you always look at players' careers to see how they, 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 you know, they might develop as managers. And the one thing you've got to say about Lampard, and Lampard was a great midfielder. Uh, like, you know, it's, um, I, I think he's, in terms of highly rated players at the Premier League era, he's underrated, mm. if that makes any sense. Because people took him for granted. You know, he was getting 20 goals from the midfield every year, and he was always in that position. But you know what? He played his own game. Yeah. He didn't think about anyone else. He did his own thing. One of the reasons him and Stephen couldn't work together for England is the, you know, neither would subvert their own game for yeah. you know for the for the team and that makes you think how good a manager are these fellas going to be because uh you know are they going to be able to develop that sense of teamwork and sense of generosity yeah. on the pitch and well, one of the one of the early comments I think that's been doing the rounds around Chelsea is that he it's sometimes as if he's coaching he thinks he's coaching Frank Lampard mm. uh and a player of of his level yeah which is was a common flaw. Well, that, that that that's one of the other things. I, mean, I remember talking to Sunes about it. It was obviously his management career was, um, should we say, spotty <laughs> at best. But he said, like, he come from the background at Liverpool where they they said to him, you know, when they signed, look, we've told you once, you've got it wrong. We'll tell you a second time. We're not going to tell you again. You're out the door. So he he, he sort of developed his playing career with players mm. who 
you know, of that level who could take on. He said, and he realised once he started managing, he said he took he took a, a course. Um, as one one coaching course after he, he finished at Newcastle, so probably a bit lazy. Accepts that, but he said um, he said the the, the thing that, that they stressed him all the time was reinforce, reinforce, reinforce. Tell the players over and over again what you want from them. And he said he was he he went away and thought about that. He said he was telling them once, twice, and that was it. You know, you finish with me. And he, he said, I made the realization that lesser players, players who weren't as, you know, sort of didn't have the, the ability that, that, that he had and the players he played with, you had to tell them over and over again. You couldn't, you know, if you didn't tell them over and over again, they wouldn't, you know, they, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't do it, you know. So, and he said, he made a mistake. And you wonder whether Lampard, he's that sort of player who you t- tell once, you you know, you tell twice, and he's fine. Yeah. You never have to worry about him again. But he's going to, he's, he, and he's clearly got a lot of players there that he's going to have to take a very different approach with to how he approaches playing career. Well, it's interesting. I suppose one of the keys to management, I suppose, which is one of the one of the various important aspects, but giving players insight that actually improves their understanding of what you want and the entire game. Like, I heard a story just this week about whatever you think about Gordon Strachan, but there was stories from Sean Maloney that basically it, it transformed his understanding of football, which is basically when Strachan told him, right, you're, you're, you're the winger. When we're defending, always make sure you're in line with the opposition post. And he said for Maloney, that guided his entire career. Yeah. Because it just, it, it immediately allowed him to understand team structure and where he should be to make the team compact when defending. Yeah. And I, it, I suppose it takes, a, especially if you're a very good player, it takes maybe a certain personality to be, to realise that and be able to, I mean, a, a contrasting example. I remember one press conference when Roy Keane was Ireland's assistant manager and he was talking about how Darren Gibson had to impose himself as a midfielder. And I think it was Ken Early that asked him, so how, how does he do that? And Keane couldn't actually articulate mm. what he had to do. He kind of like, oh, make a tackle. But like, why? When, you know, it, it was just that inability to really... Well, 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 that's the problem. It's one thing to, saying to players, you need to do this. It's another thing saying to them how to do it and how they can change the game, modify the game to actually fulfil what you want them to do. And that, that is the art of management. I guess this will be a wider discussion that we'll probably hit on multiple times this season. But I think a lot of what we were just saying is the sort of the folly and the problems of learning all these things at the top end of the Premier League. I think it's for most, for most, if not all managers, they've sort of gone through these processes of learning the little foibles that professional footballers need and the way you manage different people with different needs. And... Lampard's effectively doing this now at a massive football club with everybody watching him do it live and in real time. It's gonna be a. It's all. It was always gonna be a big job for him. He's obviously got a lot more rope than almost any Chelsea manager ever. But um, it's gonna be. It's gonna be fascinating to watch it. And the, and the thing is as well, his Chelsea career coincided with periods where they downgraded the position of the manager, and. And they were lucky in the sense that they had a, a dressing room full of really strong characters like Lampard, like Terry, like Drogba, who, you know, at times like when, you know, when AVB was sacked and, and Di Matteo come in, essentially, they managed themselves. He hasn't got that, you know, and so he's got to find a way of, you know, of getting the best out of these players who, you know, you, you, you look at them and you think to yourself, big job, bottom half of the table. 
Miguel, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Gordon Strachan there because that brings us to a, <laughs> a fellow star of Sky's The Debate Show. And, uh, <laughs> and Ben, you've got both a hero and a villain of the week, haven't you? So I don't think that's our boys making up that new change of law. I think that's people telling us what we that's should do with our game. Yeah. yeah. Now, they should stop doing that. I, I hope we get out of Brexit because that's what we've all voted for and sort that out because you cannot have someone telling us how to do our own game, right? It has to be Ian Holloway. We were recording this on Wednesday and uh, yeah, last night's performance was a remarkable one. Um, there was a certain uh, certain symmetry in a uh, middle-aged man moaning about uh, blaming a European institution for foisting upon him a rule that a British person invented. But we'll, uh, we'll see. A tweet by Sophie Levi- Le- Levin I saw last night, basically. She, she sums it up, a perfect Brexit metaphor, an ignorant man on national television randomly blaming the EU for an unpopular regulation set by British authorities <laughs> and telling us that leaving will solve everything. <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it, it's... I, I, I mean, people, you know, said over the years, people have enjoyed Holloway and, you know, and they think, oh, he's great, he's entertaining, and he goes on and on. You know, frankly, I was always like... It's all bollocks, really. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> I, you know, this is a football manager who, and again, never told you anything at the press conferences that would give you any insight into the way his teams worked, what he was trying to do. Um, he get everyone laughing because of basically playing the buffoon. Yeah. And yet everyone, oh, he's great, isn't he? Well, no, he isn't. He's a and bit nasty as well. I oh, yeah, yeah. I had a go with a journalist about, who was quite a slim journalist about his weight, basically. If you, if you want to be in my team, you have to lose a few pounds. Uh, like there was, there was a lot. Of, and then there was this sense, uh, in 2010-11 when he got Blackpool up, and he started to suddenly go on about Spain, uh, which which is amazing given what he said last night. But in Spanish football, but there was this sense of oh, he's the last sane man in the game. When like yeah. he was, uh, and like you know, it's it, I, I, I never saw what people you know. Well, I mean, I, I I just thought I just thought he was daft and not very good. <laughs> I know it's unlikely, but I so hope Ian Holloway listens to this podcast. And he's, <laughs> he's made it through 50 minutes <laughs> enjoying the discussion and then gets to that. Anyway, thanks, guys. Um, that's probably all we've got time for this week. Um, as ever, be sure to follow Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything going on. And if you're a new listener, please subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.